Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast, and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. With that out of the way, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our wonderful sponsor, eToro. The best way to be smart about trading crypto is to use the smartest trading platform. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with extraordinarily low fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice on the platform with their virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. You can create an account at b.tc slash reaction, or click the link below in your show notes. Just scroll down on your phone, click the eToro link, and it'll bring you right to their website. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm thrilled to have on Luke Roman, who's the founder of the research firm Forest for the Trees, and Kevin Kelly, who's a co-founder of Delphi Digital, spends a lot of time in-house on the macro side of things here, does our weekly commentary. So I think there's going to be a great conversation between uh, two pros in the field. Luke, why don't we start off with you? Just give us your background and, and how you got involved in the space. Absolutely. So I spent uh, um, close to 20 years uh, on the sell side uh, of investment research uh, with a couple different regional brokerage firms. I started off actually in research with an old line Cleveland money management firm called Ralston and Company in the mid 90s that had a small sell side operation and was one of the early employees of a group that left that firm to start Midwest Research. This is way back in 1996. At any rate, uh, we grew that business uh, and sold it to First Tennessee Bank out of Memphis in 2001. And during that time, we we were you know two things. We we really uh, were early pioneers in very uh, deep in the weeds, bottom up sort of channel check fundamental research. Uh, channel check driven fundamental research. And then I uh, was the editor, uh, founder and editor of a weekly piece uh, that we started putting together for our customers called The Herd in the Midwest, which was a compilation of data points from all of the bottoms up research married with sectoral and thematic and macro uh, uh, framework that I was, uh, you know, that I was uh, doing on my own time as well. And so the piece came to be very popular. Like I said, in 2001, we sold that business to First Tennessee. And then in uh, uh, mid-2006, myself and about 20 other partners left uh, to form a Cleveland Research Company, where, again, we were doing very deep in the weeds, bottom-up research. And I, again, reprised my role uh, editing um, this, this weekly piece. I went to thousands or tens of thousands of uh, analysts and portfolio managers around Wall Street, you know, called Straight from the Source. And so that really uh, you know, whetted my appetite, not just from, from the macro side, but uh, uh, got a bit of a reputation as someone that connected dots in a, in a unique and helpful manner. Helped uh, a number of customers of the firm uh, that I called on position well for what transpired in 2007 and 2008. And after 2008, I uh, was spending more and more of my time on, on macro and central bank driven themes. And 
you know, by the end of 2013, uh, was looking to do that uh, more full time and approach my partners to discuss that. And, um, you know, from a marketing standpoint, they said, hey, you know, we'd love to have you do that. You know, we're not exactly sure where we would position this in our portfolio, just given, uh, you know, they were known for very deep in the weeds, bottom up research. And, you know, from my standpoint, you know, I wanted to stay with them, but I also wanted, you know, my key caveat was I want to have complete creative control to write whatever I want to write because I felt like that was going to be important for what seemed like was, you know, beginning to transpire and was likely to transpire in the future. So we parted ways amicably in, in early 2014, and I hung on my own shingle as FFTT or Forest for the Trees. And, uh, you know, we put together uh, investment research for institutions, high net worth individuals, sophisticated investors. And, and basically what we do is we uh, aggregate a large amount of publicly available data in a unique manner trying to identify uh, developing economic bottlenecks because it's been my experience that that's where uh, excess returns in sectors or or uh, areas of uh, areas of the economy or markets uh, accrue uh, to those areas set to benefit from or be hurt by uh, uh, economic bottlenecks. So that's the that's the nickel tour of my background. Luke, that's incredible. You're definitely not short on experience. That's a great track record. Kevin, why don't you give your quick introduction? I know you've been on the podcast before. We had you for the Perfect Storm for Bitcoin a couple episodes ago, but give your intro just so everyone's aware. Yeah, no, really quick. I mean, uh, certainly don't have the experience track record that, that Luke does. So happy to be part of this conversation. Feel privileged to, uh, to even be sitting here talking to him. But um, yeah, quick background on me. I mean, I, before uh, co-founding Delphi uh, Digital with you, Tom, uh, was a U.S. equity strategist uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. So basically looking at you know, global stock market trends, specifically how they affected the uh, domestic equity markets. But again, you know, as we'll get into, nothing really operates in isolation. And so a lot of the work that I did was focused on, you know, more kind of a macro strategist type role to figure out, you know, where we thought the market was heading, what kind of the headwinds were, um, and, you know, what the potential sectors, um, or even as I expanded into a bit of the emerging market space, you know, what what, what markets we thought would outperform and, and for, for what reasons. So essentially, it was more so kind of on the equity strategy route before then. And so a lot of, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, a lot of the work that I focus on here at Dell is, you know, trying to put, you know, Bitcoin and, and the broader kind of crypto markets within the relative macro perspective, because I think, you know, I've been pounding the table on this, but I certainly think in order to understand what the long-term value proposition of something like Bitcoin is, I think you do have to have at least a basic understanding of, you know, kind of the macro landscape, the backdrop that we find ourselves in and, and where, you know, we're potentially heading, um, because I think it's, 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 you know, even more so a monetary phenomenon than it is um, a technological one at the end of the day. Excellent, Kevin. And I want to give a quick shout out to Tim McDonald for helping set this up and recommending, Luke, you come on. So big props to him there. So, Luke, just jumping into the conversation here, I think it makes sense to start with your views on the current market outlook, specifically relates to global monetary policy. What are your feelings here? You know, how's the air now? You know, I think we are coming to um, you know, the head, you know, you're coming to a head on in terms of a, a confluence of factors that have been developing over the past five years, 20 years, uh, depending, you know, 50 years, really, in, in a number of different ways. And, and by that, I mean, there has been, you know, if you go all the way back to 71, when the U.S. unilaterally uh, ended the Bretton Woods uh, monetary system and closed the gold window, there have been a number of different uh, signposts along the way that the world tolerated that arrangement, uh, but that as time passed, uh, they were looking for uh, a replacement that was better suited to their needs and, and, and a more multipolar approach 
And I think that that accelerated further with the launch of the euro. And then I think it accelerated further when we go back five years to the third quarter of 2014, when global central banks stopped growing their holdings of treasuries, uh, which was something that had not happened in 70 years. Um, and you know that then began to force the, the, the burden of financing U.S. government deficits increasingly onto the global private sector, and, and that then sort of set off a number of different pressures, which you know, included you know, higher rates, higher LIBOR, higher uh, dollar, um, and those pressures have been building for five years and, and in the last 12 months have accelerated meaningfully with uh, FX hedge treasury yields going negative 12 months ago, and then Fed funds rates going over IOER earlier this year. And then, you know, finally with this repo rate spike, which, you know, to me, you know, if I think about, you know, FX hedge treasury yields last fall as, as being sort of, you know, you know, on your mark, and then Fed funds rates going over IOER as gets set, then I think the repo rate spike is, is really the starting gun for, I think, what is ultimately going to prove to be this, you know, sort of a denouement, if you will, of this 5, 20, 50 year process of moving away from the dollar as structured post-1971. That's excellent. Kevin, what are your views on the current market? Yeah, no, I mean, sticking with uh, kind of piggybacking off some of the things that Luke said, certainly think, you know, structurally long term, um, very similar outlook when it comes to, uh, we'll call it dethroning king dollar, um, you know, kind of for, for lack of a, a better term. But a lot of the things that I, I wanted to get into with Luke here, which I think are really interesting. And, and when we talk about, you know, some of our market outlooks, I think it's also important to kind of put into context the timeline for what we expect these things to do. And so I really quickly, I'd love to kind of shift towards the short term versus, you know, long term outlook excuse me, for the dollar. Um, because again, I think longer term, there are a lot of you know reasons that we'll get into that, that, that we should expect a structurally weaker dollar and there's a move away from it in this kind of de-dollarization movement. But Luke, would love to get your take on kind of how you, how you match the short-term versus the long-term outlook for something as important as the dollar. Because in my view, I certainly, again, think long-term it, it should weaken. But in the short term, I mean, there's a lot of different factors when you think about the growing amount of U.S. dollar-denominated debt. Um, you've seen a major bid up for, for U.S. assets, you know, both on the equity side of things with the S&P, but also looking at elongated tre- treasuries up, you know, somewhere north of 15, 20 percent this year. You know, when you, when you start to think about flows and, and where people are really kind of moving their money as we get into even deeper uncharted waters uh, in terms of global monetary policy, how do you kind of weigh the short term versus the long term outlook? Or how does the short term kind of play into your to your longer term outlook for the dollar? Sure. So for me, and it's a great question, because it obviously for practitioners, you know, it's, it's, it's the key. And so, you know, for me, I really think of it, you know, I, I completely uh, subscribe to this, this dollar shortage theory or this dollar denominated debt, creating a squeeze higher in the dollar effectively. And then within that, to me, there's a, you know, there's a couple different legs to it that we then use to inform our thought on timing. And so leg one of that is the, the domestic versus the offshore dollar, right? So you've got you know, this offshore dollar system, which is the euro dollar, and this you know, the global uh, dollar-denominated debt position. And clearly, they do not have the ability to create sort of you know, base money dollars to repay that. And so there's sort of a natural short squeeze there that you know gets more pronounced as the dollar begins to rise or as the the global economy starts to slow or if the US stops importing as much oil and exporting as many dollars etc so 
that's sort of, you know, part of, of leg one. But what I do is contrast that or hold that up against the United States' own dollar shortage, which is something that most dollar shortage proponents just completely leave out. And, you know, someone asked me about a year ago, so, you know, with this dollar shortage, how can you be, you know, structurally negative on the dollar? And my answer is, is nobody's more short dollars than the United States. And within the United States, nobody's more short dollars than the United States government. And, you know, the list of uh, sovereign powers that have uh, chosen, you know, to basically shut down their government or defund themselves for lack of a purely printed fiat currency uh, is very short. It's really never happened in thousands of years of history. And so to me, when I think about timing, one of the key things I've been watching has been, okay, you, you know, we're sort of racing towards cliff's edge. And, you know, there's the offshore dollar component, right? And we've seen some of the weaker players there, right? So Argentina over the cliff, Turkey over the cliff. You know, consensus is that, you know, China and EU and the rest of the world's all going to go over the cliff and, and the U.S. is lagging far behind. And the reality is, is that, Based on how much debt the U.S. has, both in the private and in particular the public sector, the race off the cliff's edge between, call it China, the U.S., and the EU is really neck and neck. And what makes it even more complicated is that it's not like the rope connecting the three of them is really long. They're basically all connected you know, around the waist with a six-foot rope. And so like, if the EU goes over first, like the U.S. is going to go over like, a millisecond later. If China goes first, same thing, you know, or if the U.S. goes first, then the U.S. goes first. And, but they're sort of all in the same boat and there's no detaching that. And so when, when I think about timing, what I've been looking for has been signs that the dollar shortage in the U.S.'s own economy are getting severe. And so, you know, to me, number one was this, you know, FX hedge treasury yields going negative because that basically uh, accelerated things. But then, you know, Fed funds rates going over IOER earlier this year was a huge, huge, huge signal that the dollar shortage in the U.S.'s own banking system was beginning to get acute. And then this repo rate spike of three weeks ago was an absolute like slam dunk indicator that it is very acute and the Fed is going to have to act to relieve uh, a dollar shortage in the U.S.'s own banking system. And, and as we heard Powell say yesterday, they're going to start real soon. And so to me, there's, you know, that's sort of leg one, which is, okay, there's a dollar shortage, but there's this offshore dollar shortage, there's an onshore dollar shortage, and which one of these two is winning? You know, the second leg we can get into later, we can talk, you know, after we, you know, explore this more if you want, is, is you know, the de-dollarization of global commodity markets where initially it's dollar positive and eventually it's dollar negative. And, you know, we're five plus years into, into that. And so, you know, where are we on a tipping point there? But but really, for, for your listeners, I, I think the key is, you know, where is the domestic dollar shortage re- in relation to this external dollar shortage? And events are con- clearly suggesting that, you know, it, that the domestic shortage has gotten very acute very quickly. It's excellent, Luke. For the listeners, could you explain the difference between the Fed funds rate and the IOER? You mentioned it several times, and it sounds pretty significant here. Yeah, so the, 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 the oversimplified version is basically, so Fed funds rate is an interbank uh, lending rate between banks. And after the Fed engaged in QE, they created sort of this 
uh, you know, two-tiered system where in order to be able to control interest rates, they also began uh, you know, paying interest on the excess reserves that would, would the bank's excess reserves held at the Fed. And that way, basically, if, if Fed funds, the, the way to think about it is, is if Fed funds rates went above the rate on, of, of interest on excess reserves, then the banks would be uh, incented to take money out of excess reserves and lend them into the Fed funds rate, Fed funds market, and uh, because there would be a risk-free arbitrage available, and and by that way they would be able to control rates. And so, when this spring Fed funds rates went above interest on excess reserves, it was a big signal um, that something was amiss. And so, in theory, the banks should have just taken their money out of excess reserves and lent it into the Fed funds markets and you know, capture that risk-free profit, uh, but they didn't. And there was speculation at the time that it was temporary and it was technical factors and that it was tied to quarter end and it was tied to tax payments and it's sort of all the things you're hearing as it relates to this repo spike uh, of a few weeks ago. And our case at the time was, no, this is about you know, the U.S. deficits crowding out the U.S.'s own uh, economy because we are having to finance more of those deficits ourselves and that you know what it's basically telling you is what the Fed is calling excess reserves aren't excess at all. They don't the, the reserves are minimum. And so, you know, as it turned out, our view was much more right than wrong um, from the standpoint that Fed funds has has never traded back below IOER uh, since March 20th, um, and of course spiked up a few weeks ago. And so basically, Fed funds over IOER is telling you that there is a shortage of dollars in the United States' own banking system to the extent that banks are unwilling or unable to pick up free money sitting on the corner. Yeah, no, that's, that's really great. Appreciate the explanation too. Because it's it's one of those things too where you've seen a number of different explanations come out for you know what the, what the potential causes were for the called the repo madness uh, the last few weeks. Um, and that's certainly, I, I've, I've uh, subscribed to the view and, and read some of your recent work on that. And I, I certainly agree with a lot of the, the takes there and kind of pivoting on, on the same track, you know, sticking with the Fed here and getting into, uh, you know, these kind of longer term structural uh, potential um, developments for the dollar that, that could lead it to be to be certainly much weaker. When you look at the U.S. Treasury issuance, right, that looks like, I mean, when we talk about, you know, federal deficits, certainly those have been expanding, getting wider, and there's really no end in sight in terms of U.S. Treasury issuance. And the Fed now almost becoming, you know, the, the originally was the buyer of last resort, but, you know, potentially even becoming almost the um, you know, first buyer of resort for um, funding essentially the U.S. government going forward. I mean, that in itself, like how, how, do you, how do you see that playing out? And do you think that could be a potential catalyst uh, or what is the potential catalyst for people to wake up and realize what's happening in these markets for um, them to really react and kind of come around to the severity of it? Yeah, I think I think that's exactly where what has just begun. That the Fed has effectively been forced into financing the government, and I think it's going to continue for a long time or until the dollar weakens sufficiently enough to either you know to to to, to either reduce U.S. Treasury issuance you know through balancing out the current account a little bit more or by normalizing FX hedging markets to the point that the foreign private sector bid is fully restored uh, or restored to full strength. And so there's, you know, foreigners begin to take, uh, you know, begin to shoulder 
a greater share of the burden. But unless the dollar weakens significantly, then I think the Fed is, you know, sort of committed to this in the same way, you know, the the the, the pig is committed to, or the chickens involved with breakfast, but the pig is committed. The Fed's committed to this, <laughs> whether they like it or not. And I get the sense they don't particularly like it. Now, I mean, in terms of when do people start to realize it, it's been interesting to me to observe this, right? Because when when this happened, it was to us, it was pretty clear right away, just given our framework of what was happening and that this was important. And, you know, sort of the, you know, the, the mainstream narrative was, well, this is just overnight for for a day or two. And then it wasn't. And then it was, well, it's just technical temporary factors. And then it wasn't. And then it was, you know, some, well, we're going to add some term repo in addition to the overnight, but it's going to end soon. And then they extended it to October 10th and added a couple more term repos. And then they extended it to November 4th. And so to me, there seems to be um, this, you know, I don't, I don't know what's causing it, but it's almost a disbelief, like this collective disbelief of like, I, I think I see what I'm seeing, but I, I don't believe what I'm seeing until the Fed says it. Right. And I, you know, I think that, there, it, it, you know, the challenge in that is that is a very, you know, fickle catalyst that, you know, when, when, when the narrative changes, it's going to change overnight and you're either going to be there or you're not. And, you know, then you're going to be chasing. Right. And one of the things, you know, I've, I've quite frankly struggled with in terms of trying to figure out to your point exactly when um, we'll call it that inflection point actually happens is that in theory, I mean, this can go on for, for quite some time, right? You could have, I mean, as long as the demand for, and I think this is certainly the key, the demand for, you know, U.S. Uh, government debt, right, through treasury, the treasury issuance, as long as the demand is there, this could kind of go on almost in, in, indefinitely, right? Not forever, certainly, but at least for the foreseeable future. And so kind of pivoting back to your, to your earlier point about, um, you know, the foreign private sector and, and just kind of the appetite or the demand for U.S. treasuries. I mean, we've still seen that, you know, extremely high, um, at, at least, you know, in general, the demand for foreign treasuries. Um, but maybe kind of we could get into breaking down where you see that those demand trends potentially shifting. And if that is, you know, kind of one of the um, um, dominoes to fall in this, in this, uh, in this uh, move away from um, the dollar longer term, even potentially being global reserve currency, I think a lot of the short term um, kind of bullish nature for the dollar certainly lies in that, in that demand for treasuries, that demand for us, you know, denominated debt, because again, we are getting to a point in this cycle where a lot of people are certainly worried, have again, flooded into us assets and are, very uncertain about what, you know, the next, let's call it 12 to 24 months, really how the next 20, 12 to 24 months could really unfold. You know, how do you see the, the demand for, you know, treasuries at the end of the day shifting? And is that part of kind of your, your longer term outlook for, uh, for the dollar as well? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, your, your point on, you know, the dollar, on the, the, the dollar shortage point, I think is really important because it, if the Fed doesn't move fast enough or, or go big enough at any point along this curve, then you know, I think the dollar is going to be well bid, and I think um, risk assets will not be well bid. I think the Fed had a lot more leeway to drag their feet on this you know, when it was not the Department of Defense and U.S. entitlements and U.S. interest expense that they were shorting, which is what they will increasingly be doing when they drag their feet from here on out. You know, in terms of the demand... You know, it's interesting, right? If you look at the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee or TBAC uh, report that they put out quarterly, you know, the, the narrative is that demand for long dated U.S. Treasuries is really strong. And, and it is, as, you, as denoted by the price. But within that, there's some interesting shifts that are 
I'm finding very underappreciated. And by that, I mean, you know, if you go back five years, uh, the TBAC report said that the U.S. Treasury's goal was to extend weighted average maturity up and to the right. So it was probably about 68 months at that point, And they were going to extend it up and to the right at a 45-degree angle for the foreseeable future. So out five years. And so we fast forward five years. And, and of course, so within that is the assumption that they're going to be issue more and more long-dated paper and less short-dated paper as, as a percentage of the mix because the bid for long-term treasuries is so strong. Okay. Makes perfect sense with rates near 5,000 lows. You issue as much, you know, long-dated paper as you can. We fast forward five years to the 3Q19 TBAC report, and what we find is that in the midst of the strongest bid for duration in 5,000 years, the, the lowest yields in 5,000 years, with Greek debt yielding <laughs> basically zero, we yeah. find that the weighted average maturity of U.S. Treasury debt outstanding has actually fallen over the past five years. And so the question becomes, why did they not take advantage of the strongest bid for duration in 5,000 years? And there's only really two explanations. One is that Treasury didn't know that the bid for duration was the strongest in 5,000 years, which is completely implausible, um, to say the least. That's just not it. Or, or the bid for duration, uh, for, law, for U.S. duration, is not what they say it is. And when you take a look at who's been buying U.S. duration, there was a great article in, in the uh, Wall Street Journal about three months ago, and it noted that 55% of U.S. Treasury new, uh, net issuance is being bought, uh, and it's, this is, they define long-term uh, as, as uh, two years and above. So 55% of U.S. Treasury net issuance two years and above is being bought by U.S. individual investors. And that number was like 32% five years ago. And so where you can see is, is the same people that were flocking into tech because it was a new economy and, and, and the same people that were then flocking into residential sand state real estate uh, because we got burned in tech and we, we want you know real estate safe, real estate only ever goes up in price. Those are the same people that are now flocking. You know The reason the TLT is at 141% is because the same people that were flocking into tech in 99 and flocking into real estate in 05 are flocking into the TLT for safety. And some of that is, of course, life cycle, you know, demographic, right? I mean, the, the, a, a disproportionate percent of the wealth uh, in the U.S. is held by the baby boomers. And so there's a natural bid there, sort of a duration matching. Uh, you know, but our view is that that bid isn't what people, what, what it looks like. And what's important about that is, is that there's only so much they can sell because the baby boomers have a finite balance sheet. And the other problem is, is that, you know, starting pretty soon, uh, the baby boomers are going to turn net sellers of assets. And so you say if the baby boomers who've been your majority buyer of new treasury issuance, everything over two years, uh, who's the buyer from them? And there's only one answer because if I, look, if I'm running a hundred billion dollars at a big global sovereign wealth fund, you know, this movie is very clear what's happening. I mean, I've seen this movie over and over and over at, you know, countless emerging markets. And, you know, with the yield curve shaped the way it is, like I would be crazy not to just keep buying three-month paper and rolling it. And at the front end of the curve, the demand has been, you know, demand's been good. It's been three-month roll, three-month roll, three-month roll. But, you know, trying to finance a $22 trillion government or, you know, $4 trillion annual budget uh, at, at three to, you know, 12 months, 
it's suboptimal. And like I said, importantly, what the repo rate spike tells us is even that short-term bid is all of a sudden not enough. Right, right. And and one of the things, you know, one of our kind of, I guess you'd call it in-house views has been as independent as the Fed, you know, likes to come across and say that they are. I mean, they're certainly handcuffed uh, to what other, you know, competing or major central banks are doing as well, right? You think of, you know, the obvious ECBs, even the BOE or the or PBOC and the BOJ, I mean, just continues just to ramp, you know, asset purchases at this point. And they're, they're, they're you know, uh, a whole new uh, bag of worms, I guess you'd say, or can of worms that we could get into. But, but my point being, if how much of this in terms of the treasury demand and again, the kind of longer term effects on the or shorter to longer term effects on the dollar, I mean, how much of this is also dependent on what, other global central banks do as well, right? Because if you have this in, this this race to the bottom in terms of interest rates and now additional stimulus packages coming through and basically trying to prop up, you know, whether it's in Europe growth and, and certainly inflation, but even here in the U.S., we really haven't seen you know, the eyes of inflation yet. How much of kind of that your, your short-term uh, dollar outlook and, and really the outlook for, for we'll call it the treasury market relies too on what other global central banks do as well, right? Because you could have shifting demand factors for treasuries just based on the fact that, you know, again, assuming that the, the um, FX hedging risks uh, made sense and the economics made sense and you were actually getting a positive yield on this. I mean, the U.S., just given its economy, how relatively strong it is and, and the positive potential yields you could get where you have have to your point, you know, not only sixteen or seventeen trillion dollars in negative yielding debt, but now you have places like Greece that I think they're they're, they're the yield and debt actually uh, dip negative today. There's got to be this kind of playoff between what you know is happening here domestically, but also you know is is kind of at the mercy of what else is happening, um, you know, internationally with other other central banks, and other central bank policies. Yeah, I I think that plays. You know, I think that's those are those are fair points, and that they play. You know, what other central banks are doing. Uh, plays a lot in terms of that importance of that view. I think the FX hedging uh, component, I think, is really critical to understand in terms of uh, the demand dynamics. And by that, I mean, you know, right now, if we look at FX hedge treasury yield, 10-year treasury yields uh, to a Japanese investor are about negative 1%. Uh, and FX hedge to a European investor, uh, they're about negative one and a quarter. And so, if you want to eliminate the dollar risk in your position, the U.S. Treasuries, uh, uh, 10-year Treasuries, the lowest yielding instrument or one of the lowest yielding instruments in the world. And so the challenge within this then is, you know, if I'm you know, running a big book in Japan or Germany of you know, insurance or pension money, you know, my, my, my decision set is, you know, do I... Do I lock in the worst yield in the world but hedge out the dollar risk? Or do I you know, lock in the best nominal yield in the world but take the dollar risk on myself, which as long as the dollar is strong, uh, that makes sense. But if we have another 2017 where the dollar falls 12%, I lose my job and I lose you know, uh, six years of coupon. Um, and uh, Or you know, do I, you know, instead of you know, buying U.S. treasuries at negative one to one and a quarter FX hedge, do I buy, you know, Boons or JGBs where I don't have to hedge in my home currency? Um, you know, if, if I'm Japanese and, you know, with JGBs, obviously, and, and you know, Boons with, with, excuse me, if I'm, I'm European, you know, or if you're Japanese, you can go across, you know, Euro yen and, you know, some of the pickup, uh, you can actually uh, have a positive yield after FX hedging costs. But 
I have the roll risk every year, right? Because there's a mismatch between the debt instrument and how often I need to roll the currency hedge. So that might be a profitable carry now, but in 12 months when I need to re-up that, it might it might have gone against me and now it's a negative carry. But but the point is is that if if you know that th- this decision set didn't exist 12 months ago. Uh 12 right. months ago there was, you know, I could, you know, Bar, you know, borrow money in those other currencies, buy treasuries, lay off all of the dollar risk and still have positive carry. And that stopped 12 months ago. And so now there's this decision. And so you, you definitely have seen, to your point, an increase in the amount of unhedged treasury buying from abroad, from the foreign private sector. As a practical matter, there's only so much of that they can do because they just... you. You just can't take that much, you know, you can do it on the margin, but you can't do the majority of your book unhedged. Just, there's just too much, too much risk to it. I, and so, um, you know, 12 months into it, uh, the fact that FX hedge treasury yields are, you know, way more negative now than they were 12 months ago. And the fact that we're 12 months into this process suggests that, you know, we're, we're, we're closer to, you know, there was stress as of 12 months ago. To me, there's just more stress to, you know, look elsewhere. Then I think is greatly, then I think is broadly appreciated. We're going to continue this conversation shortly, but first, some quick info from our amazing sponsor, eToro. For a lot of crypto fans, it's hard to find one place where you can trade, plan, and discuss strategy all in one place. Turns out Europe has had a platform that can do this all along. It's called eToro, and it's the world's number one social trading platform. Not only does it give you access to the most popular crypto assets on the market, but its virtual trading and discussion features let you discuss and test strategies with a community of over 11 million other traders. And the headline news is they've officially launched in the USA. To get started, visit b.tc slash reaction to make an account, or just scroll down in the show notes and click the link below. With that, let's jump back into the conversation. It's excellent, caller Luke. There's definitely more stress now, and the market's just so interconnected now with other countries and other central banks. I'm interested... What are your thoughts on what does this all mean for precious metals? I mean, there's a lot of talk about gold and what's going on there. How do you think it all relates back to the precious metals industry? Yeah, I think, you know, what we just spent, you know, the last uh, you know, number of minutes describing is, you know, hugely positive for gold and for silver, simply because, you know, I think it's a very valid conversation of, you know, who goes over the cliff first. And at the end of the day, you know, I think it's important to take a step back and see the broader picture, which is that, you know, we're we're in a global sovereign debt bubble. Um, you know, you go back 20 years, we had a tech bubble, we kicked it upstairs to the banking system and the housing sector. You know, then we had a, a housing bubble. And, you know, to fix that, we kicked that up to the sovereign. Now we have a sovereign debt bubble. And, you know, sovereign, you know, <laughs> sovereigns don't go broke. You know, sovereign, right. sovereign debt yeah. bubbles break through the currency. And so, you know, to me, it's just, you know, we can debate, you know, does the dollar go, you know, fall before the euro, the euro before the dollar, or the yen, you know, so on and so forth. But ultimately, like gold wins no matter what, silver wins no matter what, and I think I think Bitcoin wins within that as well. Yeah, it's a very interesting point to basically kick the can up a floor on the sovereign debt bubble here, Kevin. What are your thoughts on what this means for gold, especially maybe some relation to Bitcoin here too? You said eventually we had to get into Bitcoin, right? You knew this was this was eventually going to come, but no, I I, I completely agree, and I think. 
it's also important to take a step back and think about when we talk about, you know, one of our, our, our views is and why, you know, we're obviously, you know, bullish Bitcoin long term here. Um, and I think certainly a lot of the short to even medium term drivers of precious metals, specifically gold, um, will be similar drivers that will influence, you know, the price of Bitcoin here, um, you know, for the next probably, you know, foreseeable future again until until it really um, has some type of mass adoption or really accrues, you know, a lot of the value that we think it, it has to have in, tor- in order to kind of function as um, we all expect it to. But one of the things that I think, you know, we definitely hit the nail on the head is that at the end of the day, you know, gold, precious metals, these kind of even non-income producing uh, commodities or assets um, win because you could have a situation where, you know, taking a step back, we, we talk about, you know, the dollar strength or euro strength or yen strength or weakness. But those are all relative to one another, right? And we started to get into this in terms of what your potential spreads would be with, you know, euro versus uh, uh, versus the yen, euro versus the dollar. And so I think it's really important because when we talk about, you know, our view of broad-based, the threat of broad-based currency devaluation increasing, especially with everything going on in, in kind of, you know, global monetary policy land and even physical policy to, 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 to a degree, when we talk about that kind of broad-based currency valuation threat and, and the risk of that rising, you know, what is it? What is it rising against, right? Or what is going to be? What are these currencies going to fall against? And we can continue to come back to kind of the hard assets like gold and like Bitcoin. So long term, you know, we think that a lot of these things, you could have a situation where the dollar, relative to let's say other major currencies, you may not see a, a huge effect, or the weakness isn't quite as pronounced as you would see um, in terms of the gold price when you measure it in, in U.S. dollars. You measure Bitcoin. Coins price in U.S. dollars, so the longer term kind of narrative is certainly playing out for to be to be bullish Bitcoin um, as almost like a highly levered play on the option on digital gold. If it really does what we think it can do, you know the asymmetric upside is certainly is certainly pretty large. But even you know the, the outlook for gold is certainly really appealing um, now, not only because of these things that we're talking about, but also when you, when, when you bring it back to negative yielding debt and, you know, the, the suppressed yields even here in the U.S. on treasuries, you know, the, the opportunity cost of holding something like gold, um, because, again, you know, we can make the argument Bitcoin versus gold. But to be honest with you, if you're just talking about these kind of non-income producing assets and the cost of storing these things and, and things of that nature, the opportunity cost of holding that uh, continues to drop as, you know, yields government bond yields, you know, across the world also drop, right? So it's, you have a, a few different factors, I think, that are certainly playing into this kind of longer term bullish view that we have for, you know, gold, Bitcoin, and, and some of these precious metals. Luke, any thoughts there on how this relates possibly to Bitcoin in the long term? I know, I don't know how much time you spent on the space or, or not, but I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts there in relation to gold. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with what Kevin said in terms of how it relates to, to Bitcoin. I think, I think uh, the world is, is, I think it tactically you're seeing this you know, this this you know currency you know it, it, you've got a global sovereign debt bubble and the global sovereign debt bubble gets resolved by the currencies being written down against something and ultimately you want to hold sort of neutral reserve assets and I think Bitcoin fits into that um, in terms of being a neutral reserve asset. Um, you know, sort of, you know, for the people, you know, that you can buy on your phone for a millennial generation. And so uh, I think it makes a lot of sense uh, that this uh, this environment, you know, that we described should be very supportive for Bitcoin like it is for for gold and for silver. Yeah, that's great. And and I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier that, that we wanted to hit on in terms of kind of the de-dollarization of commodity markets, right? And, and just to put some kind of broader context for the listeners, 
you know, something that we can also talk about is in this in this longer term view of dethroning King Dollar, right? And and the de-dollarization of um, uh, a lot of uh, foreign uh, governments also trying to move away from their dependence on the dollar, right? Not necessarily just in commodity markets, but you could get into the SWIFT system um, and just how kind of vital the U.S. dollar is to call it global commerce, right? And the, the global financial system. How do you see, or what are your thoughts on again de-dollarization of commodity markets? Maybe talk a little bit about um, the Chinese yuan and, and where you think you know how much of a threat you think that you know potentially is short and long term towards the dollar um, with some of those petro contracts that have come out. Maybe just again give us your thoughts in terms of the de-dollarization of commodity markets and what that longer term kind of means for um, the dollar as a reserve currency. Sure. So. You know, to me, I think I think the de-dollarization of global commodity markets is an ongoing and accelerating fact. Um, you know, the yuan oil contract that launched in March of 2018, you know, was sort of poo-pooed, downplayed, said it was going to flop. Um, you know, four months later, its front month volume was equivalent to that which had taken the Brent contract 20 years to achieve. And and the reality is that based on a number of, you know, based on longer term factors that I sort of let off in the podcast, but then based in the shorter term factors of what was a penny wise but pound foolish U.S. policy to weaponize the dollar and in particular the SWIFT system, they took, the U.S. by doing this took what was, you know, probably a slower developing trend and made it a really fast developing trend because it became a matter of national security immediately for China, uh, for Russia. And for the EU to price oil, price oil and gas, energy in particular, but commodities more broadly, in their own currencies. And so, you know, you've seen the yuan oil contract uh, succeed. You've seen the Saudis uh, agree to increase shipments to China in very large amounts beginning late last year, uh, displacing Russia, who was one of the initial, you know, yuan sellers. You've seen the Europeans this summer puzzlingly side with Iran over the United States in regards to pricing uh, or the energy sanctions and and voicing the importance of, you know, establishing the INSTEC system to be able to price uh, energy in their own currency and and buy energy from Iran. Uh, You saw two weeks ago Rosneft, the world's, I think it's the world's biggest oil export. At any rate, there are four or five percent of global oil supplies, you know, saying that they are shifting invoicing the euros. And so, you know, to me, this, the de-dollarization of, of commodity markets is happening. It's partly a natural uh, response to, you know, that is a matter of long-term national security for China and Europeans, um, because if, if, they, if they are still importing increasing amounts of, of energy in dollars, and they're really just economic vassals of the United States and the Fed, and ultimately China will suffer a current account crisis if they don't move their uh, commodity import uh, invoice to their own currency because they will run out of dollars. They can't run out of yuan. I, I think it's misunderstood uh, often that you know the runway on this is is extremely long because it's going to take a long time for China to move their entire their entire invoice bill over to to yuan. And I think it's important because that that, that doesn't necessarily. That's not necessarily the case because once, you know, the, the CFO, one of the three biggest commodity trading houses in the world, told me 10 years ago, he said that the, in commodity markets, the marginal ton prices the whole. And so in, in oil markets now, the marginal ton of oil is being priced in either yuan or euro. 
And so to the extent that the yuan or euro are falling against the dollar, the dollar price of oil will fall. And if the dollar price of oil falls, then, you know, that, you know, makes uh, that strengthens China's position. They suddenly, uh, you know, if their commodity import bill in dollars falls. And so I think there's this misperception that, well, you know, renminbi energy or yuan, yuan oil won't matter until it's all done or a majority of it's done in yuan. And the reality is it, 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 that's not true. It just has to be a viable market, which it already is, uh, particularly in the front month or two or three. And if you do that, then all of a sudden, you know, a weaker renminbi will lead to weaker oil and weaker oil because, you know, law of one price says you can't have the same barrel of oil priced in two different, you know, currencies in two different prices after adjusting for the cross rate. You know, that, does, that accomplishes the same thing, which is it gives China control over their commodity import bill and prevents them from having a Southeast Asia-like currency crisis. So uh, to me, it's, it's a really big deal, you know, where it ties in, you know, to answer your question, what's it mean for, you know, for de-dollarization and, and the trends we talked about before is, you know, once these, once these non-dollar energy payment systems get up in place, the rest of the world doesn't need to buy treasuries like they used to at this, at, you know, at the official level. And so the United States can print dollars for oil. And so we have FX reserves of 0.6% of GDP. The Chinese could not print domestic currency for oil up until recently. And they have FX reserves of 25% of GDP with the majority of those uh, in US dollars. And so, you know, Multi-currency energy means over time, the FX reserves of China are going to go from, you know, 25% of GDP to the U.S.'s 0.6% of GDP. And so then you turn that back around and at a time where you've got rising U.S. deficits and not enough demand as it is, you know, this just puts more pressure back on, uh, you know, back on the U.S. fiscal situation and ultimately back on the Fed and the dollar. It's incredible, Luke. So just switching gears a little bit, like let's say the US dollar does spike. How quickly does the global economy deteriorate in that scenario? Yeah, I think if the I mean, depending on the spike, you know, and again, this all ties back to okay, when does this matter? You know, when when and tactically, the dollar was at 98, 99, and we had repo break. Take it to 105. It's going to break even faster. Take it to 110, it'll break even faster. Take it to 120. Like <laughs> and and I think the repo spike was also informative because we saw how fast the Fed reacted, right? As soon as the dollar shortage hit the U.S. banking system, the Fed was on it like yesterday. And so, you know, to me, it all comes back down to, you know, the dollar sh- to, to the U.S. and to, to Fed, et cetera, U.S. officials. You know, the dollar shortage is all fun and games until the U.S.'s own economy gets caught up in it. And I think something that a number of, of commentators are not adjusting for is that, you know, they're just assuming the last cycle will be like this cycle without making adjustments for the change in the operating environment. By that, I mean, you know, in 2013, it was noted that the uh, uh, emerging markets are the world's biggest uh, oil consumers, first time ever Uh, in 20 or maybe that was 2014. But in 2013, um, it was noted that emerging markets are now the majority of global GDP or goods and services for the first time in 300 years. Um, you know, you can see this show up in U.S. corporate profits when the emerging markets fall. You can see it in U.S. tax receipts when the emerging markets fall. And so, you know, the other thing they're not adjusting for is it's been a hundred years since the U.S.'s sovereign, you know, debt to ca- or uh, you know, debt to GDP levels have been over a hundred percent when we've headed into a recession. And it's 
you know, it's fascinating. It, it, it developed markets in total, you know, have not been in this position since since World War II. Uh, but they happened, you know, twice to emerging markets in terms of where debt to GDP is in aggregate for, you know, emerging markets versus developed markets. And, you know, the IMF did a white paper in 2015 that noted, you know, when you have a recession with sovereign debt levels at these at these heights, you get three outcomes. You either get uh, inflation, restructuring, or hyperinflation, like every time. And so, you know, basically in 2015, I mean, the name of the report was, was uh, um, uh, Extinguishing Sovereign Debt, I think it was, <laughs> by, by Carmen Reinhart and, and, and Bellens Brancia, uh, a white paper with the IMF. And so my point is, is that if, you know, to the extent people are looking at, okay, if the dollar spikes and we have a downturn, you know, we need to look at the 08 platform or uh, playbook or the 01 playbook or the 98 playbook or the 91 playbook or the 80 playbook. Like, those aren't the right playbooks. Like, the playbook is 68, 41, or, you know, 1920. And sort of in all three of those, on either a real, nominal, or both basis, you know, sovereign debt holders, <laughs> they, 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 were, they were the suckers at the card table, so to speak. Right. No, no, no. hundred percent. And, and on that same kind of train of thought, but, but pivoting a bit, you know, we've, we've talked a lot during this conversation, obviously about, you know, the, uh, you know, fiscal situation within the U S and, you know, obviously this brings up and, and there's a lot of discussion actually, especially in, in kind of the we'll called the crypto enthusiast world right now about uh, modern monetary theory or MMT. Right. And it's certainly one of the most kind of polarizing debates right now, you could argue in, in, uh, in let's call it traditional economics. And so obviously would love to get your, your take and, and really quickly, I mean, my thought here and would love to know, you know, what you're thinking is, you know, one of my big kind of qualms with it, to your earlier point, is that, you know, you don't have sovereigns don't default, uh, but they but 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 they kind of pseudo default within the currency, right? The currency breaks, currency um, gets devalued and certainly weakens or can even crash. And so that's kind of where that's kind of how I view this 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 MMT the rise of MMT or the, the resurgence of the MMT argument is that in the short term, I mean, it certainly could make a lot of sense. But when you start talking about the long-term effects of something like that and pre- basically just spending, um, you know, uh, at will essentially with the U.S. government and, and not really thinking that that's going to have repercussions and not really factoring the fact that we're, you know, heavily uh, uh, foreign financed, you know, that, that ends up being a longer term kind of structural weakness for the dollar, but would love to get kind of your take on, um, you know, what, what, what that could mean. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's, I, I think it's not good for the dollar. I, I think to me, you know, something we've written about a lot is, is if, if, you know, sort of the, 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 the table was set for MMT by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right, with, with Social Security. And then the lack of political courage in the ensuing 80 years to not reform Social Security. And then it was, the, you know, it was set by LBJ with, with guns and butter uh, in the 60s. And again, the, the politi- lack of political courage to do anything about reforming it in the ensuing 50 years. And so, you know, and then I think the final sort of, I don't want to say nail in the coffin because it's, you know, it is what it is. It's not a coffin per se. It just is what it is. You know, we we made these decisions, and now you know now they're coming home to roost. But the the final sort of problem with it is the way two thousand eight was handled, uh, which was everybody got bailed out at par. Uh, nobody went to jail, and everyone's options were sort of money good. And and then we spent the next sort of you know, and when I say we, I mean sort of the the financial media and and sort of consensus. 
sort of uh, apologizing away that, hey, this had to happen and this was for the good of everything. And at any rate, there's no long-term costs to it. And so now we get to 2019 and we're going, uh-oh, like the fiscal situation is spiraling out of control because of these entitlements. We need to do something about it. And the reality is, is you've spent, you know, you know the, the, the U.S. sort of, you know, consensus has spent 10 years telling people, well, the bailouts were fine. They needed to happen. And so now politically, it's impossible uh, to try to do anything to reform, you know, Social Security, to so, uh, reform Medicare, Medicaid. And personally, I don't think they should. I mean, if, if we were money good on, on bailing out the banks, these should be money good, too. This, uh, the challenge, though, is as you look at the U.S., you look at the U.S. Uh, budget, as of June 2018, 103% of tax revenues went to just three things, entitlements, defense, and interest expense. And you can't cut interest expense without slashing interest rates to zero forever or defaulting, neither of which is good for the dollar. Defense, you know, that was mismanaged for the last 20 years. Uh, and so now we actually have real adversaries and we've spent, you know, $5 trillion on a war that accomplished very little and, and uh, cost a whole lot. And we're now sort of have, you know, we're facing in the wrong direction in terms of our weaponry and challenges. And we're going to need to invest a lot of money in DOD. And so we can't really cut there. And then you look at entitlements, you know, like I just said, there's just, you know, if we think politi- politics have gotten extreme over the last several years, try cutting, enti- try cutting Social Security or Medicare, and <laughs> then we'll see what extreme really looks like. So, you know, to me, it all feeds into the conclusion, which is your point, which is like, I think it's inevitable and it's coming. And, you know, there's really not a whole lot to do about it. Like what needed to be done, you know, requires an 83 DeLorean and a flux capacitor in it, right, to go back in time. Luke, that's awesome. I love how you bring up how our tax revenue goes to just three areas. That's incredible kind of to hear and to zoom out. I guess the the next question for you would be, do you think a global recession could be the catalyst that could dethrone the U.S. dollar from from its status here? And, you know, I'll pose the same question to Kevin afterwards. Uh, Yeah, I think, you know, I I think the dethroning of the dollar is already well underway. And the reason I say that is, is if I look at uh, uh, FX, right, it's, it's not so much what you know, share of transactions is, right? You can transact in anything and, you know, the dollar share of global FX turnover, right? You know, so if, you know, you and I sit there and trade dollars back and forth to each other with a, you know, with a high frequency trading machine, it makes it look like the dollar's used a lot. And that's, I think that's a marginally useful statistic. To me, the more useful statistic is what's it, what's, what is, what's being settled, right? What, what is, what currency are things being settled in? And when I take a step back and look at that, a very different picture emerges. So if I go back to 2013, uh, since 2013, global central banks' holdings of treasury bonds are flat to down slightly. Their holdings of gold are up, you know, call it about $170 billion, and very clearly they continue to reserve gold at near record rates. And even when I take a, a closer look into the IMF uh, composition of foreign exchange reserves or the COFA report, over the past 12 months, the, the dollar's uh, reserve rate has bounced, right? So it fell, call it 13 through, I don't know, 16, bounced up a bit. So, you know, if I look at for every dollar of increase in reserves, which are still have not retaken the highs seen five years ago, but the, the, every dollar of increase in FX reserves over the last 12 months, about 50 cents of that is in dollars and about uh, 50 cents of that is in euro, yuan and gold. And so to me, um, you're already seeing you know, this sort of 
central banks voting with their wallet and they're not voting for the dollar. They're voting for, you know, the yuan and the euro and, and, and gold. And so I think if you get into a global recession, then you're going to you're going to see the U.S. be forced into super QE, which, you know, I think you could easily see 250, 350, 400 billion a month in QE just to sort of keep the lights on in the U.S. And I think that's only going to accelerate uh, the pace where people say, you know what, I'm just going to reserve gold instead of, uh, you know, instead of dollars. And, and maybe I'll reserve a little bit of euro and yuan. But it basically goes to a more of a balanced trade. I will reserve dollars to the extent I do trade with the U.S. I will reserve euros to the extent I do uh, with, with, with the Europeans and, and yuan with the Chinese. And, you know, my biggest reserve pile in terms of growth going forward is going to be gold. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I love the fact that you brought up, and this is something that I think is is sometimes often overlooked too, is that it's not necessarily the amount of uh, transactional that it happens within, you know, the the U.S. dollar. It's it's the fact that you have, you know, U.S. Treasuries, for example, is the most liquid market on the planet, and it is kind of the key, you know, staple reserve asset for global central banks, right? And so, you know, following up to to your point, you know, and that's why I, I think when people say, you know. Dethroning king dollar or or the dollar losing its its uh, reserve status, global reserves uh, currency status. I think it's going to be a little bit you know more longer term is just because I, I think there's you have to have a structural kind of unwind of what central bank reserve assets are made up of in this and this general shift. And to your point, you're starting to see that right, and you're starting to see central banks really bid up uh, huge demand for gold, especially within the last couple of quarters this year. Um, and you're seeing you know uh, Russia, for example, at the kind of extreme end, you know, selling out pretty much of all their U.S. Treasury holdings and their their um, uh, central uh, bank reserve assets um, and moving more towards gold. And, and, you know, I don't think China is necessarily going to do something similar just because, again, it would hurt them, at least in the short term, if, if the value of the treasuries declined and they signaled that they were going to be um, doing something similar. But I definitely think, you know, this de-dollarization movement is, is certainly underway. And it's just a matter of kind of how we get there. And the question I'm always kind of bouncing back and forth with is, is it just simply the fact that right now the dollar and we'll call it treasuries as reserve assets, is it as if people are just kind of picking the best from the worst? You know, because, again, there's a lot of uh, advantages or, or I guess you'd say that the U.S. assets are attractive relative to everything else, but everything, you know, nothing operates in a vacuum. So it's all kind of this relative game. Is the dollar, I, I, I think, the longer term outlook for this, and it's what I struggle with to figure out is, you know, how do we actually get to a point where you either have this kind of multi, you know, reserve currency status and then it eventually moves to something else or it moves to something that's a non-sovereign type asset. And again, this is kind of where we get the long-term view of Bitcoin back in here as a potential alternative digital reserve asset. You know, I'm always trying to figure out what is the next best option for, you know, the kind of global reserve currency. And, and right now, it's just it just seems like the dollar is kind of in the best position and will be for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the, you know, if I'm China, I, you know, I don't think if I'm China, if I'm the Europeans, you know, it's almost like there's, you know, the, the, the two views of, you know, the U S has to run deficits and has to ship our factories and jobs overseas, you know, because we want our biggest export to be treasuries because that's, that's a political decision. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. They made sense from call it, you know, 71 to 89 when we were, you know, in a cold war, they didn't make any sense from 89 on, uh, and they're actually hurting us more than helping us. But I think the Europeans and, and Chinese have a very different view, which is that they do not want to run the deficits uh, that forces them to supply the sovereign you know, debt 
to be the reserve asset. They would appear to be moving towards sort of a, you know, Keynes's Bancor, you know, proposal at at, at uh, Bretton Woods, where you have a neutral reserve asset that floats in every currency. And you know, I think you know, gold is serving in that role at the moment. And so, you know, in terms of a currency that overtakes the dollar, I, I don't think anything's going to replace the dollar. You know, I think a neutral reserve asset will replace treasuries. I think it's, you know, as we talked about a moment ago, uh, gold is replacing treasuries, um, has up for six years. And, you know, what's the catalyst? I, I think, you know, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a scene in, you know, I don't know if, you, if you're, if you guys have kids or are Harry Potter movie fans, but, you know, there's a scene where, you know, they say that, you know, the, 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 the Harry Potter's being kept alive, you know, like a pig for slaughter and that, you know, when the time comes, he has to die. And it's essential that Voldemort do it himself. The, the main villain, kill him himself. <laughs> and I, I think that's apropos in this case, because to your point, you know, I don't think it helps China to sell the treasuries. I think they've been laying them off on a net basis with things like Belt and Road, but I don't think it helps them in any way to sell it. And I don't think, you know, the limited amount that Europe has, it doesn't really help them either. But I think what the strategy is and has been for five years is all you have to do is stop buying. So basically, if if you're foreign central banks and you guys all get in a room and say, we're just, or or, or you're told by the BIS or something, you know, hey, stop buying treasuries. If you just stop buying treasuries and then wait, the, you know, Voldemort will kill the dollar himself, right? The, and Voldemort being the U.S. fiscal situation, which we're now coming to a head on, which is that the U.S. can't fund itself if foreigners all walk away. We can go to the private markets and then we can go to the domestic private market. But ultimately, the only guy on the planet with enough balance sheet to finance U.S. deficits, uh, particularly given our demographics and entitlements going cash flow negative, is the Fed. And so the Fed is just going to finance deficits. Until the dollar adjusts accordingly, and away we go. And you know, when the dollar is adjusted accordingly, like that's gonna be a really good world. Like all of a sudden, we're gonna be able to compete in manufacturing for the first time in fifty years, and wages will rise in the U.S. instead of you know having to you know basically fund consumption with subprime debt like we did for the last twenty years. Um, you know, it's a bad world if you have too much of your money in treasuries, uh, but it's a great world for the U.S. and it's a great world for the rest of the world where you know they can all of a sudden move away from. You know, sort of the, the 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 mercantile. You know, we're gonna you know save a bunch of money and and borrow. You know, stockpile a bunch of treasuries to keep our our currency low, and then ship a bunch of stuff to the U.S. Um, you know, if they all of a sudden can you know can can you know produce more of their own consumption, and we can produce more of our own. They can consume more of their own production. We can produce more of our own consumption. Sorry, I had that wrong. So it's that that's how I see it going down. Is it basically like? You know, the dollar is going to stay the way it is until the Fed is forced to finance U.S. deficits. And, you know, my point earlier, I, I think that just started. Hey, Luke, that's awesome, caller. And, you know, one of our last questions here are with everything going on in the macro environment here. And I know this might sound crazy, but, you know, my focus is not nearly as experienced as you guys on the macro side here. Would it be crazy to think that something like Bitcoin may be able to eventually take the place of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency of the world? Or do you think that you know, might be too dystopian or too far out? The short answer is I think it, it could play a role in some way, shape or form. The question is, is, you know, will authorities allow, you know, a truly uh, neutral asset that they have no control over? Or will they try to come up with their own, you know, IMF coin or BIS coin or uh, some sort of neutral reserve asset that they that they can control? But the way I look at that is, is the way I look at 
you know, gold, which is to say, ultimately, if, if, if they do that, the whole point of doing that is to devalue all currencies significantly all at once. And in that world, you know, whether Bitcoin retakes the mantle, you know, or takes the mantle itself or doesn't, like it's still a neutral reserve asset with finite issuance and infinite duration. And that's a, you know, that it, it should go up in price just based on what the authorities would be using, you know, IMF coin or BIS coin to do, which is devalue all currencies, devalue the real value of debt outstanding, which is what has to happen. Love that. And Kevin, just a follow-up question to you. I mean, what do you think the world looks like if Bitcoin were to become the global reserve currency? Like it's it seems like there would be a lot of coordination issues or or maybe it solves coordination issues between countries and how they base their economies, but wondering your take there. Yeah, it's a good question and and something we obviously go back and forth with. And I think, you know, the long-term kind of optimist in me thinks that you know, loose point, it certainly could play a role in this in this new world. Um, and I think it would probably I wouldn't necessarily think that it would it would ever, let's say, replace the dollar as the kind of, you know, key global reserve currency, the kind of one ring to rule them all type approach. But I do certainly think that, it, again, longer term, it may be able to serve as this kind of, you know, smaller alternative reserve asset, which, again, even if it's able to do that, would accrue you know trillions and trillions of dollars in value. Um, the other issue I think that uh, you know is something that the um, that Bitcoin would have to um, get over in order for it to even be considered is, and when I say considered, I mean really considered by kind of your larger uh, central banks and and really become kind of a, a mainstream or staple asset is the fact that there's just not a ton of liquidity because it is such a small, the entire asset class is still pretty small, right? So when you think about gold, I mean, I, I think it's often overlooked too how just liquid the gold market is as well. And if you're thinking about the purpose of reserve assets and having these central banks being able to, for you know whatever their, their uh, intended purposes are, usually trying to, to manage their currencies, if you need to be able to get in and out of these things. You need to have liquidity there so you can get in and out of these things relatively quickly if, if some type of crisis strikes, but also with, with minimal slippage, right? And so I think that's where, you know, you have to have, it's an interesting kind of chicken the egg argument where you have to have global, a much more global, globally liquid market for Bitcoin in order for it to serve that purpose. But at the same time, it's not necessarily going to get there until you have more kind of, let's call it sophisticated investors, institutional investors come into this space to grow that liquidity before it would even be kind of considered as a mainstream, you know, reserve asset. But I, I certainly think it can, even if it doesn't necessarily achieve that status, it could still, you know, accrue a, a ton of value just because um, it is this, you know, alternative safeguard for um, savings, especially in a world where you have, you know, the trends towards negative yielding debt. And at the same time, there's a lot of, you know, technical aspects to, to Bitcoin in terms of its portability its censorship resistant nature um, that, you know, we talk about in a lot of our research that uh, certainly gives it a leg up on gold. So I don't necessarily see, um, you know, Bitcoin, long story short, being this kind of one ring to rule them all type global reserve currency. But I do think it starts to play more of a kind of mainstream role in the global stage, just because of all these things that we've talked about, you know, in, in, in this in this throughout this hour. It's awesome. And, you know, Luke, follow up question for you here. I mean, it seems to me, you know, focusing more time in the crypto world that Bitcoin is kind of this silent hedge on every regulator's shoulder, like, you know, be responsible, spend money in the right way, or else people are going to go to something that you can't mess with. I guess the same could be said about gold, though, right? Where, I mean, no country really totally controls it, but it's just been around so much longer uh, than Bitcoin. Do you kind of view it as like a silent option here that, you know, keeps everybody in check, kind of like gold? Or do you think I might be oversimplifying or just off topic here? 
No, I think it's I think it's right. I think it's you know um, you know it's interesting. I the the way regulators have sort of you know tried to control the gold market has been to expand the paper gold market, right? Which is that you know to the extent you can expand you know paper claims on gold, um, you know by virtue of the fact that gold isn't used for anything. You know, then as long as sort of, you know, nobody shows up and demands their gold, uh, nobody of consequence shows up and demands their gold, you know, then the, the you, you can sort of, you know, hide what's going on on the monetary side by, you know, just expanding, you know, the number of claims on gold. And there's a number of different uh, instruments, pieces of evidence, et cetera, to suggest that that had happened. And so it's interesting, you know, I had a conversation, I guess it's probably almost two years ago now with uh one of the biggest physical gold traders in the world who was introduced to me by by virtue of a mutual friend and we were having a drink in new york and, and <laughs> he said you know it's unsolicited it's interesting bitcoin is doing what gold would be doing if it did not have the gigantic paper market attached to it and uh um you know this was back when bitcoin was you know you know a few months from its whatever it was eighteen thousand dollar twenty thousand dollar peak because i'd been having sort of that same thought and you know the corollary to that at the time was Gosh, they're rolling out these Bitcoin futures, and you know, to the extent you start having a, a wide liquid paper market on Bitcoin, it begins to shift price discovery from supply demand for Bitcoin or gold, as it were, uh, to you know the suppliers of balance sheet to the paper markets. And um, you know, sure enough, of course, they roll out futures, and and Bitcoin did not have a good 20, 2018. Uh, they've they've come back. Yeah, they shut down a one futures contract uh, earlier this year. Um, you know, which I suspect was probably just coincidental. But you know, Bitcoin rallied sharply shortly thereafter. But my, my long winded way of saying that you know, I think both serve ultimately as you know arbiters of sort of uh, sanity that you know sort of no one can control. I think in the nearer term, um, the size and the expansion of paper markets relative to the underlying physical can be regulators' friends in sort of breaking the thermometer, so to speak, in terms of what's going on monetarily. They can do that for a while. They can't necessarily do it forever. Uh, but again, because neither are used for anything, they can they can do it for an extended period of time. So that's how I've kind of always thought about, you know, if, if someone came to me and said, if you're a regulator, how do you stop, how do you stop Bitcoin from going up? And just having seen and um, you know, done the research on the gold side, to me, the answer is easy. And that is that you, you come up with as many paper proxies as you can, and you market the hell out of them. And you try to get people to buy, you know, uh, you know, Bitcoin ETFs instead of Bitcoin and Bitcoin futures instead of Bitcoin and, and, and what have you. So that's, you know, that's sort of a long winded answer, probably more than you're looking for. But that's how I've kind of always thought about that as, as far as it relates to sort of the message they're communicating to markets. No, that that's super interesting, and it really goes speaks to a lot of how countries have to deal with this. And I know we're going a little over time here, but I feel like we should just keep going because it's pretty interesting. And Kevin, the follow up question in line with Luke for you is that let's say we do get to a world where a crypto like Bitcoin is the global reserve currency. How do governments, you know, pay for police and fire departments? How do countries coordinate taxes? Like. How does global trade happen? Like, what happens if Bitcoin becomes a global reserve currency? Yeah, and I, I, it's a great question. And I, I think it's important also to put into context that, you know, I, I certainly don't subscribe to the opinion that fiat is all 
doomed and going away, right? You'll never have one kind of universal. And when I say, you know, universal currency, literally being, you know, Bitcoin and, and pretty much nothing else, or maybe a handful of these other, you know, crypto assets. Um, so certainly I don't think fiat money is going anywhere um, anytime soon. But again, if, it, if, if Bitcoin can rise to this kind of, you know, um, let's call it global reserve standard, uh, then it becomes really interesting because again, to your, to your point, I think it's a great one. It almost can serve as a check on, you know, government policies, both in the monetary and fiscal side of things where, you know, if there is an alternative for people to go to and they can escape these uh, potentially um, not only irresponsible at certain points, especially in, in some of these emerging or frontier markets, really corrupt policies. If they have an outlet to do that, um, it certainly can, again, kind of serve as this vicious circle where it accrues, you know, a ton of value. When it comes to actual, you know, commerce and trade, you know, I, I still think that, um, a lot of that could certainly be done, certainly in Bitcoin, but also could certainly be done in things like the dollar and the yen and the euro. And I don't necessarily think it would be um, um, too much of an issue where you really kind of start to, to, to get into a gray area is what the monetary policy effects and kind of the transition effects would be of certain monetary policy actions, you know, relative to one another and how you could actually try and um, manage, you know, a, a currency against um, something like Bitcoin, which again could be potentially as the potential be, you know, the hardest money we've really ever seen. Um, I think that's where it starts to get a, a little bit difficult. And what that means is maybe you do have this move away from, you know, to Luke's earlier points, you know, we are in a, in a, in a not only a sovereign debt bubble, but it's just a, we're in a debt driven economy, right? And it's not just here in the US, but globally. I mean, we, we thrive off debt. And when times are good, that's not necessarily a bad thing because it can be put to use and put to kind of productive uh, use cases and investments. But what you're starting to see is that debt's becoming less and less productive. And so I think it, you kind of get into this really interesting world where um, does this rot, does the rise of something like Bitcoin and the threat of, you know, potentially capital flight to something like Bitcoin start to shore up some of, some of the policies, um, more so on the fiscal side for some of these countries to kind of get their acts in order and what that actually means for the long-term kind of economic growth aspect of some of these countries in the global economy. I, I, the short answer is I don't know exactly what that world could look like, but it's certainly one that's, that's worth exploring because I do think you know, to, 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 to bring this all back together. I do think that we're at a very unsustainable point. Um, it's just a matter of when kind of the, the straw breaks the, the camel's back, I guess you could say. Yeah, of course. No, I couldn't agree more, Kevin. That's really cool thoughts and a great thought experiment. So think about what would happen in that scenario. Just closing out, Luke, I'm wondering, and I'll ask this to Kevin afterwards, but what are the indicators you're looking for? What should the listeners look for now? I know you've mentioned a few to judge whether the state of the global economy is weakening? Like what are the top three things or, or even fewer things that people should really keep an eye out for? Oh boy, that's a great question. You know, you know, I, I, I've historically, and this goes back to my background and, you know, bottoms up research. I mean, I, I think you watch international uh, export volumes or trade lane volumes, you know, you can watch uh, U S transportation volumes, you know, be that, uh, you know, uh, uh, the railroad data, which is public, or, or heavy-duty truck orders, which are public, right? Because you know, sixty percent of the dollar value of you know uh, every of every good shipped in the U.S. is shipped via heavy truck, and so a good leading indicator is you know when they stop buying new trucks. You know, exports uh, of machinery out of Asia, whether they be semiconductor equipment or you know Japanese machine tools, which are which are volatile but still you know leading things like that, are what I sort of watch for in terms of the fundamentals. You know, and then the the, the thing that is, you know, like I said before, that is tough is, 
you know, it's been a hundred years since we've had a global sovereign debt cycle, right? And so once, you know, sort of part A to get right, which is hard enough on its own, is okay, what's the cycle doing? But then, you know, something that is a part B, which is something that, you know, most most analysts aren't doing or thinking about, or at least not thinking about very much. And it's, you know, I understand why it's been a hundred years since anyone's had to do it. Uh, but then what does that then imply for, um, you know, part B is what does that imply for the sustainability of the global sovereign debt bubble? You know, and then, you know, part C is, is okay, what, you know, obviously a slower economy makes it less sustainable. And then, you know, sort of part C is, is okay, well, what is, what's going to be the most likely policy response and in, and in what order or will it be coordinated amongst the, the various major currencies? And so, you know, what was hard to do for most of our careers pre-08, which was like get A right, is now we got to get A right and then we got to get B right and then we got to get C right. And within C, we got to get the order right. So it's the, that's how I'm thinking about the world. And it is uh, um, it keeps me busy. <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, absolutely. It's it's. I like to joke around that it's a uh, it's a tumultuous time to, in, in a lot of parts of the world, but it is a great time to follow kind of global macro because things have really really started to heat up. You know, the last I would say the last twelve months, really the last couple of years. Um, and I, I echo a lot of the indicators and the points that, that Luke just made. The, the transportation data is certainly something that just putting on my equity strategy hat, I used to look at quite often, especially when you're trying to get kind of earlier signs for inflation and looking at trucking and the actual amount, um, the, the uh, amount that's being paid or the cost to ship some of these goods. Because even the rise of e-commerce, which a lot of people have said from a technology standpoint, has uh, put some pressure on inflation. It also, you know, you have to ship those goods as well, right? And so if you have this kind of trucking shortage, you can see kind of how the, the downstream effects of that could filter into something like inflation. The last only kind of point that I would I would toss on top of this is um, just looking at, you know, the, the credit cycle and the um, conditions and accessibility for financing. Because again, just the fact that we're in such a, you know, debt-driven economy, if the credit cycle really, really, um, you know, tightens up, that's obviously, you know, not good for uh, economic activity and expansion. And so I think that could certainly, you know, trickle into, um, you know, the acceleration of this, this global economic slowdown. So, yeah, I think the, the, the credit cycle is definitely something else that, you know, we're watching pretty closely. Great indicators, guys. They definitely trump mine, which is generally I track how many of my friends become real estate agents. And when they <laughs> go through the roof, it's usually an issue. Luke, I want to uh, seriously thank you and Kevin for your time today. Can you share where people could follow you and learn more about what you're doing? Absolutely. So um, you can check out our website at fftt-llc.com, frankfranktomtom-llc.com. There's a lot of information there about where we are, what we're up to. Uh, I also have an active Twitter feed, at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. Uh, and you can uh, catch up on kind of what we're uh, what we're thinking about on on events day to day there. Awesome, yeah. And all of that will be linked in the show notes for anybody listening. You can just scroll down. And Kevin, where can people follow you? Uh, easy plug here for for us at Delphi Digital. So DelphiDigital.io um, is where you can find. Uh, not only you know our research portal and things of that nature, but also some free content we've got there. And then I'm pretty I'm decently active on LinkedIn, and also have uh, a Twitter, Kevin underscore underscore Kelly underscore uh, Roman numeral two. So awesome of our thoughts there. Awesome guys. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you can go to iTunes and hit subscribe to the chain reaction podcast, it'll go a long way in helping us reach new listeners and help support the show. Thanks again.